This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. Each year, thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the National Book Festival, sponsored by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. Now in its eighth year, this free event, held on the National Mall Saturday, September 27th, will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even if you can't attend in person, you can still participate online. These podcasts with well-known authors and other materials are available through the National Book Festival website at www.loc.gov bookfest. It's now my privilege to talk with the best-selling author, Brad Meltzer. With more than 3 million copies in print in more than a dozen languages... His thrillers have delighted and kept audiences on their toes all over the world. In addition to The Tenth Justice, The Book of Fate, and his numerous other action-packed mysteries, Mr. Meltzer is also the author of Identity Crisis, a critically acclaimed comic book, and the first ever to simultaneously reach the number one spots on both the New York Times and Diamond comic book bestseller lists. His latest thriller, The Book of Lies, is due out this September. And Mr. Meltzer, it's a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you for taking the time. Let's start out by talking about that uh, new book of yours, which uh, is out now, The Book of Lies. Uh, what, what can you tell us about this book? Sure. The Book of Lies uh, comes out with my fascination uh, with two of the, the greatest stories of our time. Uh, and it's, it's almost a strange way to say it, but it goes like this. In Chapter 4 of the Bible, Cain kills Abel. It is arguably the world's most famous murder. But the Bible is actually silent about the murder weapon that Cain uses to kill his brother, and that weapon is lost to this day. In 1932, and there's a true story, a man named Mitchell Siegel is shot in the chest and killed. And while mourning the death of his father, his young son creates a bulletproof man that he names Superman. And the murder weapon from that murder is also lost to this day. So the question is, what are these two murders thousands of years apart one which gives us the world's worst villain in Kane, and one which gives us the world's greatest hero in Superman possibly have to do with each other. And the answer to that is in the book of lies. Now, I know you have a pretty meticulous research technique. What can you tell us about the research going into this book? Yeah, I, you know, I just love research. My wife jokes with me that you know, it's just my, my scream, pathetic scream for help to be uh, a reporter one day. And... I will tell you that this book, like many of them, always come about by just keeping your eyes open and, and stumbling down the right flight of stairs. I was at a book signing for my last novel, The Book of Fate, and I was in Florida, and, and oh, oh, this elderly woman stands up, raises her hand, and before I can even call on her, screams out, and I'm, I'm talking about my love of Superman and the character of Superman, and she screams out, and this only happens in Florida, I know more about Superman than you'll ever know, she says to me. And I'm thinking to myself, lady, there is no way you know more about Superman than I do. And she says, sure I do. Jerry Siegel, the creator of Superman, is my uncle. Mm. And, again, this only happens in Florida. You know, the thing is, I'm usually pretty good at reading things that are subtle, um, but I'm so stupid that I just sat there dumbfounded until another guy, this this is true, stood up at the same event and said, really? I was in the Army with Jerry Siegel. So now I'm in a room of, you know, (laughs) <laughs> can be 40 people, and two of them have personal interactions with Jerry Siegel. You're playing third fiddle. <laughs> uh, exactly. So, so at this point, I've, you know, let's, let's be honest, I just let them start signing books. But the reality is, is I, I finally took that, uh, that meteorite on the head and said, well, maybe there's a story here. And I, I got both of their numbers, called uh, the niece first. 
sure enough, her uncle was Jerry Siegel, and she really got me going, uh, inviting me into their family, uh, the Siegel family. And for those who don't know the story, you know, Superman was created by Joe, uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. One was the writer, one was the artist. These two 17-year-old kids in the Depression in Cleveland, Ohio. And the amazing part to me is uh, I found out about the story that Jerry Siegel's father was actually murdered. Um, and I didn't know the story. I kind of heard rumblings about it and over the years, but, you know, I really didn't think much of it. And as I started looking into it, I found out that Jerry Siegel never told uh, his family the actual truth, never told his family the entire story of what happened. Half the family was told it was a heart attack, which is what Jerry Siegel told his wife and daughter uh, in a robbery, but the other half was told it was a shooting. Absolutely, they said to me. They were told it was a shooting and, it was a, you know, he was murdered. And I just thought, you know, this is an incredible story. Then in the 50 years of interviews where they asked Jerry Siegel, where did you get the idea for Superman? He never once, not one time, says, oh, my father was killed in a robbery. And to me, that's why the world got Superman, not because America is the greatest country on earth, not because he is baby Moses come down from the planet Krypton to save us. We got Superman because a little boy lost his father and dreamed of a bulletproof man. I understand there's also an interesting story behind the creation of Superman's arch nemesis, Lex Luthor. Yeah, no, there is. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I can't ruin the whole book, but you'll see that <laughs> <Okay>. one. Um, <laughs> but the stories you see in the Book of Lies, they're real. I don't make them up like that. I mean, you know, some of them are obviously fiction, and that's where the, the skit comes. But the origin stories are amazing to me. And it's amazing to me that when we think of these things, uh, you know, we, we are a country founded on our own legends and myths, right? We, we love that George Washington chopped down the cherry tree and never told a lie, but very often we don't want to know if these legends and myths are true, and we certainly don't want to know where these uh, legends and myths come from. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come out of the strength of America, but it comes out of our own vulnerabilities, and I think that tells us more about the character than anything you could possibly put out there. Now, you're known for uh, weaving together not just the uh, meticulous details that you research, but also fiction into your work. Tell me, not just in this book, but in all your books, how do you strike that balance and how do you weave those two together? Yeah, you know, it is a fine line. I mean, in my, in my mind, I think that uh, the best pieces of fiction have one foot in reality. I mean, every novel is just a big fat lie trying to masquerade as the truth. And I think the easiest way for me to try to convince you that it's true, that it's real, is to arm myself with facts that are real. So as an example, if I'm going to go into uh, the story of Cain and Abel, which the Book of Lies deals with, I can make up whatever I want. I mean, you know, there's enough written about the story that you can probably get away with anything. But the facts are better. And I remember I started researching when I, when I first started um, my, uh, my second novel. I, Tenth Justice had just come out, and here I was starting my second novel. And all of a sudden, I pitched uh, this idea about a Cain and Abel story. And my editor at the time said, you know, you don't want to do that. Don't do that. You, you know, no one cares about Cain and Abel. Go write your legal thrillers and do your thing. And I was just too, you know, small and starting out and, and brand new to this process that I didn't argue. But the research over the years never, I couldn't veer away from it. And I found out, you know, someone said to me, you know, the word, uh, you know, the story of Adam and Eve, he said to me, uh, you know, Eve eats the apple, I get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I say, yeah. He says, the word apple never appears in the Bible. Mm. So what are you talking about? He says, the word apple never appears in the Bible. He says, if you look at the actual translation, uh, it's not an apple. It's actually a fruit, more likely a fig. But when the Greeks translated it into Greek, they put the word apple in because apples were a sign of virility at the time. And that's where the world got apple from. Huh. 
And I just thought, that's incredible. I love that story. You know, it's one of the most, you know, if you ask 100 people, you know, what did they kicked out for? They'll say an apple. It's just part of the world today, but it's not true. Someone told me in Sunday school once it was a pomegranate. <laughs> you know, someone, a pomegranate is the other one. It's fig. I mean, it just depends, but you're, you're seeing the point. Uh-huh. There are problems in translation. It's a, it's a you know, multi-thousand-year game of telephone. And so my favorite story um, with translations is the Cain and Abel story. And we all know the story of Cain. Cain is the world's first murderer, the world's first, for lack of any other better term, bad guy. Mm. And we think he's awful. One of the reasons we think he's awful is not just because he kills his brother, but his reaction to killing his brother. Um, You know, he obviously is very, you know, has no remorse about it. And supposedly, if you look in any modern Bible, it says to God, my punishment is too great, uh, my punishment is too great to bear. As if he's saying, you know, this is a ridiculous punishment. I only killed a guy. And so, of course, he must be evil. We must hate him. And there's the story of Cain. But when you look at the actual translation, some of the older versions and some of the Geniza fragments that have been found in Egypt, the translation reads, my sin is too great to forgive. And that's a very different version of Cain. Now that's mm. a Cain who's apologizing, who's saying, what I've done is so horrible, you should never forgive me. He's, he's in a sense, being comp- completely full of remorse and sorrow and all the things we would never associate with a great villain. And now the story shifts. And now, in my theory, um, and in other theories out there, you know, I didn't make it up, Cain's not the bad guy in the story. And to me, as a writer, as a fiction writer, that story is far more interesting. The idea that the Cain and Abel story, Cain's not the bad guy. Mm. And so I, you know, I find what I love, and I just hope that I'm not that special, and therefore people will love it. And that's what happened in this one. To answer your question, I find the stories that are true, and then I see how best I can weave them into the, the imaginary story that I'm telling. And when I arm myself with facts like this, I think and I hope that it's, it becomes far more of an interesting tale. Gotcha. Now, you are, uh, of course, as we've said, a novelist, and you've also written for comic books and uh, television, a number of different formats as well. Is there one in particular that you like uh, above the rest? Um, you know, I, I love writing Superman as a character when I write the comic books because, you know, America did not give the world a great many uh, mediums. We gave the world jazz. Uh, that was a really good Wednesday for us. Uh, but we also gave the world the American comic book. We gave the world Superman. And there was nothing like sitting at my desk and writing S-U-P-E-R-M-A-N, mm. and I get to put words in Superman's mouth. That's a really great day for me. But I will say um, there is nothing to me like writing the novels because I, I, the novels, uh, I will never own Superman. I can't kill Superman, or if I kill him, they're going to bring him right back. Uh, it's not my character. But the novels are like houses that I build out of my own two hands and with my own materials. They come solely out of my brain and out of my fingertips, and I get an editor who pretty much tries to keep me from crashing the train off the tracks. <laughs> but it's my house, and you know, it's something that I've built, and there's a great pride in that. So in terms of, you know, if I could do just one and you, and you had to do just one, uh, no question it's the novels. But I'd be a liar if I said it isn't fun to, to write Superman and Batman as characters. Well, and, you know, I, I and many other people have read DC Comics and Marvel Comics growing up, and I cannot imagine having super ha- uh, Superman in my hands as, as, uh, as a creation and, and something that I can uh, influence. Uh, does, is that a... Do you feel a great deal of pressure, and, and, and how do you take such a well-known character and, and keep the storylines different and fresh? You know, I don't treat those characters any different than I treat my novel characters, and what I try to do is I try to be respectful of them. Um, there is no question there is an added pressure when you're writing a character that people have been writing for 70 years, and I'm not going to make him any better. 
and I have no right to make him any better or to change him. He is a fine point, and he's, he's literally sharpened to that point because of 70 years of 70 uh, years of people's great brains coming in and bringing it to that point. So what my job is is to try and show you what you didn't know was there but was always there. Um, but it, it definitely has an added pressure. And, and I will tell you this, I've written seven novels now, and nobody emails me after Chapter 14 of my novel telling me, uh, you know, I get a couple letters when I make a mistake. If there's a typo, I've had people send me, you know, especially because I'm a lawyer, they'll tell me the legal mistakes or they'll tell me if, you know, someone, you know, the best one was someone who told me that Fort Lauderdale Airport doesn't have 747s and why I put a 747 on that airport one day. Um, you know, people are out there, they get the details, but no one will uh, write me a letter before the book is over telling me that I've messed up uh, you know, my reference to Superman, because then I read the story from 1962, which said that Superman exactly did not like broccoli with spinach, but actually he likes, you know, ginger snap peas with his so-and-so. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I can keep up on my own characters, but 70 years of history is far harder to compete with. Um, and people take a very personal stake in this character. So the mail that I've gotten and people going to our websites, has, it's, a, it's amazing uh, how many more people we have now because once you touch that character, you are touching, I don't care what anybody says, but you're touching literary history. You're part of this giant quilt that's being built with a big red S on, the, on top of it. I'd imagine that a lot of that mail must have, uh, I guess, a certain degree of vehemence to it. You know, it ha I've actually been very lucky. Um, I've heard stories, vehement is a very nice way of saying uh, people ripping your head off. Passion. Um, and... Yes, people have a, a great deal of ownership in the character. They don't read me. They don't want to read Brad Meltzer, who writes Superman. They want to read Superman. I will be long gone and dead. They will still be reading Superman. They don't care who's on it, because whoever that person is, whether they love him or hate him, Superman's still going to be there when that person's gone. Um, so the good part is for me is I actually have been very lucky and very respectful of the character. And so the male is, is you know, I've had people do drawings of me. Um, I've had people do drafts. I've had people draw me with the characters. I've had them put my head on Superman's body. I mean, things that you would just never do in, in the novel writing thriller world. You suddenly have people coming up to you and doing. Um, and, you know, it's the same thing when I did the Freemasons in the last novel, or I'm guessing doing Cain and Abel in this one. Religion, the, you know, these are, I don't want to say that everything is a myth and a legend, because I don't, that just is disrespectful to religion, but I do feel like these are the great legends and myths and stories of our time. You know, the Freemasons is hundreds and hundreds of years and centuries of, of mystery. Superman, um, you know, doing Cain and Abel. These are the great modern stories. And, and in many cases, they're modern stories, but they go back to ancient times. So when people, whenever they react to them, they react with, um, as you say, uh, vehemently. Hmm. Now, I have to ask uh, what you can tell us about a new show that you're working on with uh, Jeff Marks, who's a co-creator of Avenue Q, because I've only seen that particular show three times. Oh, you have. <laughs> then you know it's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah, Avenue Q, Jeff Marks and I um, and Marco Panette, uh, used to be on Ugly Betty, are working on a new TV show uh, that, that I will... Uh, I can't talk about right now okay. I, just because of one reason that I can't talk about because they would kill me. But I will tell you that Avenue Q is one of my favorite shows. Uh, and Jeff and I met, and what we didn't realize is uh, we lived across the street from each other, went to the same college, did not know each other all these years. Mm. Um, and he wrote to me, and we hit it off and said, wouldn't it be fun to do a TV show together? 
uh, and uh, anyone who's seen Avenue Q knows that you'd be a fool uh, to say no to such propositions. So we've been working on that for, for months now, uh, and hopefully we'll have something to see pretty soon and something to announce pretty soon. But Great. it's definitely well, I, been a labor of love. I don't even know what it is, but I think based on that pedigree, I, sh I will sure be checking it oh, out. I'm glad about that. Um, let's talk a little uh, in general terms about you as a writer. Um, how did you become so interested in comics, and how did you become interested in writing and, and creating both comics and, uh, and books? You know, I think that there are some things in our lives that we love, and we don't even realize we love them when we're doing them. You, you just don't even realize it's right in front of your face and it's staring at you the entire time. And that's how writing was for me. I, if you look at any paper I wrote for an English teacher, from high school to college to law school, um, I would always go up to the teacher if we had to compare Freud and Erickson. And I would say to the teacher, you know what, um, how about I take Freud and Erickson and instead of doing an expository essay, I send them on a picnic and let them get in a fist fight. And they always would say, uh, sure, go do that, because they had you know, 30 other people doing it the boring way. And, but I never realized I left or right. That was just the only story I knew how to tell. I knew how to write through dialogue. I knew how to write through character. But I didn't really know how to do the expository side. But that's what came naturally. But my family wasn't the kind of family where... You know, we knew a lot of writers, or we knew any writers. Um, it just wasn't like that. So I didn't think you could be a writer. You know, that's not a real job, let's be honest. It doesn't put dirt under your fingernails or calluses on your hands. And so when I came out of college, I went to work for a guy at Games Magazine, the Puzzle and Game Magazine. Mm -hmm. And he was going to pay me real money to play puzzles and games for a living. Uh, and I'm not that stupid. I took that job. And the, he said, I'm going to be your mentor. I'm going to teach you everything. It'll be great. And come here and stay for a year. And if you love it, you stay. And if you hate it, you leave with some money in your pocket. I thought, that's a great deal. So I, I did exactly that, moved all my stuff to Boston where I knew almost nobody. And the week I got there, my boss left the job. And I thought, what am I going to do with my time? I've wrecked my life. I don't know what I'm going to do now. And I said, as a complete lark, I'm going to write a novel. And it just I just thought, you know what, everyone has one novel, and then I'll take a shot. Mm -hmm. And I started writing. Um, and I should tell you, that novel got me quickly 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers at the time. I got 24 rejection letters. How do you deal with that much rejection to get to 24? You know, I think you, most people would give up, but, you know, three or four times in. Yeah, you know what, because I was young and stupid and stubborn. And I said, if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And in that year that it took me to write the book... I realized what I finally loved. I realized what was staring me in the face all the time. Oh, yeah, I always love telling stories like this. Oh, yeah, every paper I've ever done is, starts in this way. How did I not see this? But I didn't. And really just was so happy to found, find it, but it was complete accident. And it was, again, just a moment of falling down the right flight of stairs. We have a, uh, a new... Uh, what we call National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, John Cheska, and he is uh, very positive about comic books and graphic novels as a form of literature and a way of getting people into reading. What What is your view uh, of that genre as, as a form of literature in terms of its... Uh, I've always, always, always been of the faith um, that people don't respect comic books. You know, they put on words like graphic novels to try to make them sound better at white wine um, cocktail parties. Okay. But they're comic books, and we all think, you know, whenever someone says, well, what's, you know, what's the first good book you read? Do you remember reading people go, oh, Catcher in the Rye, and I love Moby Dick, and we all try to sound important and terrifically smart. But the first morality tale that you read, whether you realize it or not, 
was probably Superman or Batman or Spider-Man. They, those were the morality tales you read when you could first read. Mm. They were comic books. And, you know, it's amazing. Look at any box office number. It's not a coincidence. It's not just because Batman's the best movie ever. People also want their youth back. And they go and they line up to this character. They remember reading when they were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And for many people, they graduate and they go on. But you forget it's the gateway drug to reading. It's the first one you love. So I've always believed uh, that there is no question we should support comic books and, and their influence on society and, and but not talk down to them. They're not coloring books. They're really well written. Um, some of them are, of course, written for kids. I don't write mine for kids. I write mine for 35-year-old men. I write them for myself hmm. because that's what I want to read. Um, I can't tell you how many letters I've gotten from teachers who say my kid doesn't want to read anything I give them. I have a student in class, hates all reading, but I gave him one of your comics, or even you know, with the Zero game, I've given him your novel because it has a young African-American character in it, and man, that took off. Now he wants to read everything. Hmm. And you get a letter like that, I mean, how could you, how could you possibly argue with what, what the influence is? Let me ask you before I let you go really quick about uh, uh, Brad Meltzer, the philanthropist. I, I understand that you are spearheading a campaign to save Superman's house. What is Superman's house, and why are you doing that? Yeah, we are going to be uh, announcing soon. Um, our, we're, if you look and you see, when I was researching the Book of Lies, I went out to see the house where Jerry Siegel came up with this idea for Superman. And the house where Google was founded is protected. The house where uh, the garage where, I should say, Hewlett-Packard was founded is also protected. Mm -hmm. Richard Nixon's house is a museum. Mm -hmm. But the house where Superman was founded uh, and created is a wreck. Mm. And that, to me, is a crime. Uh, it is disgusting to me that places like the city of Cleveland uh, has not taken care of it. It's their most famous resident. A Superman is more recognized than Abraham Lincoln. And no one uh, you know, has done anything about it. When I went to research the Book of Lies, I went out to the house, and the people who were living there, who still live there, a great, terrific couple, were telling me the story about how they get nothing from the city, no, no help. It's in one of the worst neighborhoods in Cleveland. And they would, you know, she was screaming at me, saying in the very best way, they haven't even given us a plaque. They won't even give us a plaque to say Superman was created here. So one of the first things I did uh, weeks ago is, after my years of research, I felt like it just needed to be done, is I went out there and I made a plaque. And I brought it to them, and, I said, and it says, you know, here's where Superman was first dreamed of, in this house. Uh, and it matters. It matters. Are there more important things in society? Absolutely. Are there better ways to save people? Absolutely. But it matters that one of the great heroes and one of the places where it happened is completely run down. So a group of us are, uh, are forming a little uh, secret clubhouse of our own. And uh, hopefully you will hear very soon how we are going to change exactly that. Last question for you. We are uh, obviously very excited to hear more from you at the National Book Festival on September 27th. Why do you feel it's important to participate, and what can your fans expect to hear from you there? You know, what I love about that event uh, is not just that a lot of people come, but I love anything that promotes reading on, on the wide scale. Reading is something that we all do alone. Um, most of us do alone, unless it's reading to your child, but we do alone. And it's not, you know, you can't go and line up and read. So, you know, we'll get every couple of years you'll see a Harry Potter story or something that promotes it. And then everyone goes, yeah, you know what? Reading is cool and reading is fun and reading is terrific. When you bring those 
thousands of people on the mall in Washington, D.C., there is no question to that entire city that reading is something that's spectacular. And that's what I love. What I also love, as anyone who knows me knows, is I love answering questions of people who read the books. I sit alone every day and write these books. Um, it is the thing you get to do all by yourself. And then every couple of years, you get to go out and actually talk to people. And they get to ask you whatever they want. And that is always going to be far more interesting than sitting by yourself in your underwear typing out <laughs> stories about Cain and Abel and Superman. Well, Brad Meltzer, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, we will be hearing more from you at the National Book Festival. That's Saturday, September 27th on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. If you'd like more details and a complete list of participating authors, visit www.loc.gov bookfest. From the Library of Congress, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you for listening.